History can be a confusing place full of half-heard factoids. You're listening to the following program on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network, where independent creators and fans of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and gaming meet to create, stream, and support the shows that they love. Creator distributed, fan supported, that's TFN. Find this and many more great programs at watch.thefantasy.network slash audio unsourced tales and way too many skeletons hidden in closets on vorpal history we take a blade forged from pure curiosity and cut through all the tangled stories that we've grown up with to get a better look at where our nation and our world came from welcome to vorpal history I'm your host, Ashford Wilhelm, amateur historian and political science major, if that gives you any idea of the level of expertise we're dealing with. Still, we all share the same past, more or less, even if we're unaware of it, or the details. I spent most of my life very unaware of details about most of our past, so I thought I'd rectify that a little by picking some of the highlights and lowlights that we think we're familiar with, and seeing how much of what we think is true is, well, true. In our first few episodes, we've got a chronicle to unpack. A lot of big events in the past are caused by people with no business being where they wind up, and the founding of the Dunwellmish colony was no exception. We have several accounts, diaries, and logs from the expedition about what was, to them, a new world. And we'll start with one of the histories written at the behest of the colonial governor. You can say what you like about Cal Stonecarp, but since he was the leader of the first successful colony in what we'd like to call Uh, the New World with lots of caveats, he must have done something right. He brought along one Lannis Caxton, a professional scribe and not very enthusiastic colonist. There is still a publishing house named after him today, Caxton Press, with at least two descendants still on the company's board. You can even go to their head offices and see the marble writing desk he used, but we'll get to that in the next episode. For now, let's hear what our scribe had to say when he and the other ships arrived at what would eventually be Dunwellmish. A quick disclaimer here, I do stupid accents on this show, probably inconsistently, and in a way that will probably earn me loads of emails. It's to help differentiate between the source materials and my own notes and opinions, and one of those opinions is that stupid accents are fun. With that in mind, here we go. A chronicle of the events of interest regarding the settlement of Dunwellmish, from its founding to the present day, under the leadership of the Royal Magistrate and Governor, His Lordship Callum Stonecarp, by scribe Lannis Caxton. Stan Day, the ninth of Inver, in the year 712 of the Crown's Forging. This morning we made landfall. I write this in the tent of the Governor, His Lordship Callum Stonecarp, whose steady hand and wisdom in who should be cast overboard did see us to safety, for the most part, to this new land. Our two remaining vessels, the Sea Flame and the Bontification, have made port in a nearby cove and await minor repairs, such as hull replacement, to become seaworthy again. Our first survey of the land was taken upon approach, and it was a bounty of forests, game, and shores teeming with fish. It is with a bit of regret that I recall our third ship, the Way Warden, vanishing in a storm over a month before our journey's end. It had the majority of those with experience in hunting and cooking, leaving us with only two ship's cooks to feed us. 
It should be noted that they're doing their best, and while their results are very similar to the gruel they made on our voyage, I'm astonished that such fat-laden flesh and ripe vegetables can become indistinguishable from whatever they'd been using from the ship's stores. There is an attempt to encourage our alchemist to try her hand at preparing something more appetizing, but the first few tries have resulted in some unwanted side effects. It's expected that those transformed into other shapes will resume their original forms within the week, though the ones that became smitten with each other might have more difficulty seeking to have their marriages sundered. So far, the pastries have a density more akin to lumber than dessert, but the flavor is nearly enjoyable, and uh, they lack any odd effects on those who consume them. Our patron for this voyage, King Hovarix IV, Sovereign of the Greenhold, Israelan, Iron Reach, the Golden Reach, etc., hired all manner of explorer and adventurer to aid us in our founding. I don't for a moment question his methods, but I fear those who heeded our liege's call may be more equipped to battle than to build. Our basic housing needs may be served by the continued use of spare ship sails tied to trees for far longer than I, we, will be comfortable with. What we lack in the work of hammer and saw we more than make up for in the presence of sword and, well, yes, hammers as well, but not those that different These battle-hardened men and women almost seem to hunger for something to approach our camp from the pitch-black woods. A few have tried to organize raiding parties, but Lord Stonecarp put a stop to that for the time being, pointing out that we don't know if there's anyone or anything to raid. He has promised that should any organized group of humanoids, creatures, or other sources of raw and finished materials appear, he will happily allow the dispatching of same. We have with us a few trained in the magical arts, one being a very senior wizard named Angstrom, who has caused much stir and comment since our arrival. Having no other chores to perform as of yet, he selected a plot of land near the high tide mark, and has staked out a circular area with sticks and twine. Later, a door was said to have been erected with a hand-drawn sign reading, Closed for Construction, on it. Where the materials and labor for this door were found is unknown, though none have questioned Angstrom about it, worried that our population of transformed colonists might increase. We have healers, though I worry they might place the wills of their gods ahead of more practical concerns. Several theological disagreements have been witnessed, often resulting in the need for their divine ministrations to mend what the arguments have torn asunder. Already, plots have been claimed for the Temple of Nalan and the Church of Aura, where each priest has promised a grand edifice to be built as soon as they can convert enough people to their cause. As we need them to fend off any injuries or diseases we'll likely encounter, we've been doing the best we can to placate their desires balanced against the resources available. However, as their animosity became clear on the voyage, they've been warned that the first to cause a need for a graveyard will be given less favorable consideration. Our first foraging parties have returned, and we again find ourselves blessed with courage and skill at vanquishing threats, yet burdened with dispatching them in a form that might be more conducive to consumption. A full third of the meat brought back had to be discarded thanks to those used to the ways of poisons in combating their foes, while others were nearly charred to the bone by magical flame. Those carcasses that could be salvaged for the spit were often missing large portions of their bodies, likely due to the destructive magics that flow through many of the weapons wielded by our colonists. 
The sages and scholars in our group were also put off by not being allowed to study the corpses before they were given over to the cooks. In my opinion, starvation was a higher priority, though I might be swayed if we don't find a goodly amount of spices or alcohol with which one may better deal with what's being served as food. In any case, we have found that meat is to be had in this new land, and it is at least as abundant and dangerous as it is in our untamed forests back home. This is quite naturally frightening, and it's made erecting some kind of barrier or wall between us and any layers of cunning monstrosities a priority. A special thanks to alchemist Ryun Linstar, whose gut-calming elixir has made digestion not only a possibility, but a reality. We eagerly await his promised improvement that will not tint our output the following day in alarming and varied colors. A fun fact here, a lot of legends about sea witches turning sailors into monsters were later found to be the results of starving crew members eating the last of their ship's stores to survive. Unfortunately, that often included the alchemy ingredients, so be sure to check the safety labels in your pantries, people. And even though this was the first successful colony on these shores, it wasn't a seaside picnic, as we'll soon find out. Given what happened in other towns later on, it's kind of amazing they didn't start out blaming each other for mysterious shenanigans and other goings-on. Eric, a rich white mama's boy. I'm a man. I'm like a superhero. Boom, boom, firepower. Wakes up in a burning town. Mark gets it. Hold it, hold it, hold it, go. To fulfill his quest for steak. Uh, bruh. Mind blown. In real life. Interesting seeing all of you. Right, Sally, right! Where's Eric? What did she do with Eric? Order! Order! I will have order in this court. We cannot be civil in this matter. I will remove all but the counsel and jury. The Resonance. Now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. Day, the 10th of Inva. Three of those tasked with guarding our future bastion of civilization have gone missing, and we are at a loss to explain the method of their departure. If they left of their own accord, they took no provision, no personal possessions, nor did they tell anyone of a need to go ambling into uncharted wilderness. If their vacating of our company was non-consensual, they did so in a manner that didn't leave any obvious remains, blood, or other signs of a struggle. The latter possibility has naturally become the topic of much conversation, especially with our two deity representative heads. They assure us that they sense no dark forces or foul beings at work. When it was pointed out that even in their own scriptures, eluding detection is often a talent most dark and foul things employ, the responses were less than wholesome and shall not be included here. A formal exploratory expedition was dispatched today with the goal of scouting for three days and then returning. When it was noticed that no one with any skill or means of cartography had been included, a second expedition was sent to locate them, or, failing that, chronicle some places where they were not. In spite of our best efforts, many who ate of the meat prepared last night have fallen ill, so it's been decided that our meals shall be served with colonists divided into control groups. Our alchemists assure us that this will let us narrow down what beasts and the parts thereof are possibly causing the distress of those afflicted. The Assassin's Guild representatives, included in our company for reasons that elude me, are particularly interested in any toxic materials that are discovered. Objections to this have been sensibly made anonymously. 
We have located someone with meager smithing skills after an extensive search. As an aside, it is considered impolite to dwarves to assume that everyone of dwarvish descent knows anything about metalworking, stoneworking, ale brewing, and making long and overly graphic threats if someone doesn't stop asking racially stereotypical questions. Anyway, our new smith is a young lad named Baron Smith. He didn't arrive with that surname, but Lord Stonecarp has benevolently applied it to him, no matter how much Baron insisted that he only had a few years of apprenticeship before deciding that leaving for a new country was preferable to continuing his time learning to dislike his instructor. Perhaps fortunately for Baron, we don't have a source of metal ore, so he's practicing for when we do, using a very crude forge to try and make useful things out of the items that rusted in the ship's holds that were poorly packed for the trip. It's hoped that Baron will rise to the task of at least making arrowheads that will give our foes tetanus should we encounter any. Some fields for growing crops have been cleared, and after the fires were put out, those responsible were made to apologize to the owners of the tents that had once stood there. Work on the fields will begin this Dumande, day, hopefully after Baron manages to forge a usable plough. The now former captain of the Bontification has become our first scofflaw, having tried to take his ship and return to our homelands without notifying Lord Stonecarp or anyone other than those he'd secretly had repairing the hull enough to be seaworthy. His treachery was discovered when the Bontification ran aground during the night at the mouth of what we're now referring to as Stonecarp Bay. Ironically, his ship struck a rock outcropping that seems the perfect spot for a lighthouse or signal fire, and once his vessel is hauled off of it and salvaged, plans for such an edifice will be added to our list of planned constructions. Ex-Captain Umpala has been assigned to Baram as his apprentice, and those who aided him have been tasked with erecting new buildings from the parts of the vessel they sought to flee in. While some are slightly concerned that our only means of leaving this colony appears to be a final ship that may never see the ocean again, Lord Stonecarp is certain we'll have our own shipyards up and running within the next few months. Somehow. At his very brief trial, Ompala said this expedition was cursed, something our religious leaders disputed heavily. Angstrom found this amusing, returning to what was now a stone hut, accompanying his door. The stone walls, like the door, are of unknown origin, though it's safe to assume that a wizard did it. His lordship has declared that a storehouse shall be set up, where the people may engage in commerce. The currencies accepted will be barter, as deemed appropriate by his lordship's accountant, one Landori Mansana, and expeditionary notes, of which each colonist gets five per day, with which they may purchase extra rations or any of the items bartered to the storehouse. It's assumed that things gleaned from the wilderness, such as wood and game, will become staples of trade soon enough. It should be noted that we have registered the following as businesses for our yet-to-be-built colony. A publishing house, an apothecary, a messenger service, a tailor, a souvenir shop, a bakery and caterer, a tannery, and three brewers of alcoholic beverages. None of these appear to have the facility or stock to provide any services, nevertheless, they've decided to establish themselves on paper, if nothing else. During the construction of our outer wall, from felled trees, a makeshift tavern was somehow constructed. It's suspected that the orders to build a meeting hall, where planning and food distribution could take place, were creatively interpreted. Given how quickly it was built, complete with a cellar, it's been decided to not make an issue of it. Lord Stonecarp has decided that if the desire for hearth, drink, and company is so great as to inspire nearly instant buildings, it's something to be encouraged rather than questioned. Therefore, pending any further developments, 
the Rusty Bucket Tavern is granted his lordship's blessing to serve the public. The Rusty Bucket is back in business after about a century of being used for municipal document storage, by the way. Its status as an historical landmark means it gets taxpayer support, so it doesn't have to turn much of a profit to stay open. Also, the first owner under the Dunwellmish Charter shows up at least once a month to try and serve drinks. This looks a lot like an unseen force throwing things, but post-mortem psychoanalysts assured patrons that he's just doing his best to work while being non-corporeal. They tried to get him to only serve shots, but apparently he only does tankards, which he's not really equipped to handle. The fact the place was haunted explained all the crude drawings and old-timey curse words showing up on all the city's paperwork. Anyway, back to Lannis' first excursion into his new homeland. Dumonday, the 13th of Inver. Though I am loath to protest any decision by Lord Stonecarp, I find myself two days into a trek to seek out our lost scouting parties. It's hoped that if something should happen to us, this chronicle will give the next group of poor souls sent out into this wilderness some idea of what happened to them. This tome has been enchanted to somehow be findable via a dowsing stone one of the magicians had on their person. Given such magical wonders exist, I am at a loss to understand why such things are not standard gear for exploratory and colonizing endeavors such as ours. I can only speculate that there is some advantage to occasionally ridding your company of small numbers as some sort of instructional lesson to everyone else. In the hopes that I can save future lives, I am constantly writing as we march. This has resulted in many lines of utter banality. I have eliminated all the pages I filled with a tree, another tree, a moss-covered boulder, Silar Ustan shouldn't be upwind of everyone after lunch, and so forth, as they didn't contain much that appears to be important. Now, however, we have happened upon something new, some kind of marker. It was nearly invisible to us were it not for the sharp-eyed elven scout Irina. She pointed out how a tree had been shaped unnaturally to resemble a collection of tortured bodies and visages entwined in the roots, trunk, and branches. Then she asked why no one had commented on the stone obelisk not far behind it, covered in indecipherable runic script. Further queries about how anyone could find their feet without a map and three friends to help them weren't well received. Elena found evidence that someone had passed this way a day or so before, but not if it was one of our missing parties. The signs of passage led beyond the markers, so with little alternative we pressed on. I should note that we had with us a man named Fludic Farsong, who claimed to be keeping spirits high by softly playing his mandolin as we explored. We later found that his music had an effect that bolstered courage, or more likely reduced the instinct to preserve one's life, which is why we didn't immediately turn around and return to the colony. I shall be making a formal proposal to Lord Stonecarp that bards restrict their talents to only being used on consenting participants, and that the natural inclination to not place oneself in danger is not to be inhibited. Without a desire to flee to relative safety, we pressed on finding the ruins of a village. The buildings had been made of upright timbers and cut stone for the foundation, with thatched roofs and some glass windows. Most were little more than collapsed heaps, though one or two still stood. A large oak tree had been spared from the logging done to make the village, and had apparently been meant to mark the village square. Carved into the bark was a single word, crouton. The meaning and purpose of this word remains a mystery. Remarkably, a stone tower was in the middle of the overgrowth, just outside of the ruin. It had been there long enough that creepers and saplings nearly hid it from view. One of our company's magicians, one Sendari Twinriri, warned us away from it, 
until she had a closer look. A great shocking bolt leapt from the door's iron pull, sending Sandari flying backwards a considerable distance. After her recovery, she declared with confidence that she'd disarmed whatever wards had been there and had done so entirely on purpose. She was nominated to be the first to open the door, something that she declared betrayed a lack of confidence in the magical arts. Within the tower we found little other than some mouldering papers with stained and indecipherable script, and a straw bed that hadn't been slept in for years. Sandari noted there might be more to the tower that was hidden by magic, but no amount of dispelling incantations can find any sign of concealment, apart from one apprentice magician's use of glamour to disguise a pronounced case of acne. A cry of alarm saw us outside where one of our party was reported as missing, having been carried off into the forest reportedly by a humanoid figure in black with something red on their chest. The direction indicated was more heavily overgrown than the way we'd come, and we lacked the proper tools for clearing it, in spite of Sandari's insistence that she could clear the forest using magical fire. Upon telling us of her experience with said magic, it became quite clear to us why she'd volunteered to join our expedition, rather than turn herself in for what she called a misguided legal definition of serial arson. We gathered what useful remains of tools and materials we could find before leaving the village ruin. We're not sure when we lost three more of our number, but given they weren't missed immediately, we're hoping they weren't considered vital. We'll make a note to see if anyone knew their names for memorializing in this chronicle. Note, no one did. Upon our return to the markers, it was noted they seemed to be in the wrong order. That is, the stone one appeared after the tree, which we all agreed should not have been the case. Pressing on, we again found the ruined village. We again found the oak tree, inscribed with crouton. We were trapped inside a looped space of some kind, where the way back led one to where one had started. Several of those who counted themselves as adventurers in our company claimed to have been through something like this before, to the point that they complained it was unoriginal and cliché. Their solutions for getting out of it were less than forthcoming, though they assured us that the means for exiting this dilemma were numerous. It was well into sundown and five attempts to depart before they admitted that this was going to be more difficult than they'd reckoned. Trunde, the 14th of Inver Here follows a list of proposed solutions to escaping what is being called a looped space containing the village ruins. Attempted Solution Tying a rope into the village oak and carrying the free end back towards our settlement. Result. Eventually the rope became taut and those following it found themselves back at the oak, but it now had a rope tied to it leading back the way they'd come. How it remains suspended from the ground is unknown and best not considered. Attempted Solution Determining the length of the loop via longbow fired by Pendal Silverlake, Master Archer. Result. Our condolences to the family of Simor Dundra, felled by an arrow in the service of Lord Stonecarp. Attempted Solution Walk a path perpendicular to our entry path in the hopes that the loop only travels east to west. Result. Loop happens north to south. For the time being, it's assumed this would be the same for all non-cardinal directions. Attempted Solution Tunneling out of the loop. Result. After resentful comments from the dwarves in our group regarding assumptions of subterranean prowess, others tried using makeshift tools for digging to see if perhaps the loop can be foiled via excavation. The forest canopy prevented anyone noticing right away that dirt and rocks were falling from above, and colonists Uruk Logar and Perth Rinnick were lost due to a presumably fatal descent into the treetops. Our condolences to their families. Their tools were recovered. Note, do not ask why the sky still looked blue and full of clouds and not like the underside of the ground. My headache is already quite painful enough. 
Attempted solution. Magical translocation. Result. Never ever do this in the looped area. Our condolences to the Wizards Guild for their loss. It was our unteleported and still surviving magic user, Sandari, that hit upon the solution to our quandary. Given that there was a wizard's tower and no wizard still in residence, she reasoned that whoever they were must have escaped, if not created the loop in the first place. Such a wizard would have naturally created a method for leaving that would have allowed them to remove all of their belongings from the tower as well. When it was asked why the tower could not have just been looted by another party, she pointed out that few would bother to loot a wizard's underwear drawer as the one in the tower was empty. This was agreed upon by all to be a sound argument. A more detailed exploration of the tower found a back door into an overgrown garden from which Sandari ordered an apprentice magician to harvest everything they could for use in alchemical preparations that might be of future benefit. The apprentice, in no hurry to continue studies in spells that might fatally teleport them, did so with enthusiasm. Exiting the tower via the garden also allowed us to exit the area we were previously trapped in. We have put up a notification to this effect outside of the tower, as well as a warning regarding the hole and the use of magic in the vicinity. More markers were found nearby in the form of stone pillars with runic script and trees made up of faces in apparent pain. Assurances from our scout that these were all centuries old did nothing to assuage our concerns. It was decided that we should return to our landing site and confer with Lord Stonecarp regarding any further exploration. There are three paths presented to you. Dice Tower Theatre presents Dawn of Dragons, a fantasy audio drama. Old intents should have you exiled. Time to meet. The Sunless. <laughs> Dice Tower Theater, now appearing on TFN Audio from the Fantasy Network. Creator distributed, fan supported. For a day, the 17th of Inver. There has been some complaining registered with the heads of our colonial expedition as to why they weren't informed that other expeditions had been sent to this land before. The few papers from the abandoned wizard's tower were examined, and made mention of the Castoria Fleet, a supposed collection of ships sent westward approximately seventy years prior to our own. Lord Stonecarp gave a convincing oratory that if none of those in that ill-fated excursion had returned, then it's hardly the fault of him or the king that word of any danger here ever reached our ears. Is it the fault of the devoured that they didn't escape to warn others of the dragon, he said, which ended the complaints but may not have done much for morale? There were some suggestions that rather than become the devoured in this metaphor, perhaps we should become those who warn others by making haste back to our homelands. When it was pointed out that we had no serviceable ships, nor the ability to make new ones that would survive an oceanic voyage, it was more or less the consensus that we concentrate on not getting eaten while remaining here. Angstrom's tower has grown to almost match the one we found in the forest, raising suspicion about the wizard and his purpose for being here. Plans to question him were tabled until such time as anyone was brave enough to do so. It was decided that should anyone fall from the sky after digging any sort of hole, a committee to interrogate the wizard should be formed. Safety lines have been suggested for any digging wells or graves. The topic of grave digging led to more concerns at the apparent attrition rate of our colony, with other disappearances having taken place during the previous week. Again, it must be noted how many of our numbers are adventurers. There's even a tent with a sign advertising an adventuring guild already, which makes planning on who may or may not show up for necessary work the next day a gamble. 
A final note, the Bookmakers Guild, founded two days ago, is taking bets on which part of the colony will be constructed first, if at all. Star Day, the 18th of Inver. There will be little written today, as I am told we are relocating Lord Callum Stonecarp's official residence, from beneath a tent from the Buntification's main sail, to a new location more suited to his lordship's needs. I have been handed a broom and a shovel. Marn Day, the 20th of Inver. Forgive the scrawl my handwriting has become, for I have been laboring in ways I am most unaccustomed to. I have moved enough soil these past two days that I am considering naming the resulting hill after myself as a landmark. I am still picking cobwebs out of my hair, and I fear that spiders have taken up residence and are refreshing their silken strands in protest to my chosen hairstyle. But perhaps I have overlooked an important bit of news. A discovery most fortuitous and unsettling was made. Nearly all areas where earth has been overturned to make way for homes, and places of commerce have revealed foundations already laid. When it was inquired as to how long ago this place had been unsuccessfully settled, those who had experience in such historical sleuthing declared it was difficult to tell. Apparently, supporting timbers that were burned or sheared off at ground level don't give many clues as to how long ago such destruction took place. That there was no sign of logging or stone-cutting when we arrived tells us that we could be building atop very old stones indeed, and possibly not the first to do so. With this in mind, a party was sent to examine the reef from where the attempted escape to sea was made. The outcropping of rock would make for a fine signal fire or lighthouse foundation because it had been used for such purposes before. When the waters were calm, the ruins of a tower can be seen below the surface, possibly including a large metal brazier used to keep the bay's mouth lit. Debate over whether or not this is a beacon to welcome new vessels or a way to signal for our rescue were quashed in the name of preserving morale. Rather than dampening the spirits of our colonists, the discovery of ancient ruins has made them even more eager to venture forth into the surrounding lands to find more places to delve. Upon a near riot at where the gate to our settlement will eventually be built, between those tasked with keeping the populace in and those desiring to venture forth, Lord Stonecarp called for a colonial council. At the meeting, the two clerical leaders, the head of the Adventurers' Guild, the Assassins' Guild, the Magicians' Guild, the Thieves' Guild, the Artisans' Guild, etc., were all of a mind that something had to be done to address the apparent inescapable desire among people to risk their lives for treasure and glory. Both were highly sought after, as the available treasure was nearly non-existent, making any valuables that could be found worth far more than they'd fetch back home. Similarly, with this being a new land, glory was available for the taking, as most oft-spoken of deeds currently involved surviving our cuisine and not being declared missing, presumed eaten. Balanced against this, of course, are the needs of the colony, the primary need being that it required construction and not to have a constantly declining population. When presented with these two competing forces, and after enough alcoholic beverages had been distributed to make those president more amenable to one another, a new charter for our colony was forged. It was hereby agreed that those who wish to leave the colony for the purposes of what shall be called adventure may do so after earning enough colonial merits, which may be earned via several actions outlined below. Once enough merits have been earned, that individual may purchase days of adventure time that may be spent outside our palisades and walls however they choose. An extra day is allotted to groups over four that take with them a locating bauble, allowing one of our magicians to find it wherever it lands. Those people who have skills in various arts and professions may earn merits in the following activities. Druids, growing and planting crops, growing timber, taming animals for colonial use, producing plants with uses beyond food, and finding treatments for the overuse of same.
Clerics, healing wounds, reviving the recently deceased, banishment of disease, purifying our food and drink stores, granting divine favor to certain endeavors, and removing curses caused by other clerical or magical persons. Magicians, creation of useful items such as the aforementioned location bubbles, divining and scrying of the lands and denizens thereof, enchanting tools or weapons to improve their use, providing non-lethal entertainment at gatherings and festivals, and animating the inanimate to assist in chores or labors. Warriors. Perimeter defense, training of a town watch, and discouragement of creating a gladiatorial arena. Thieves and assassins, hunting outside of the colony walls, assisting in the crafting of locks and securing the colony against any intruders that employ stealth, and preventing others of similar skills from employing their craft within the walls of the Dunwellmish colony. These are among the broader categories, and this list will be added to from time to time. It's also not exclusive to each profession, as Lord Stonecarp has decreed that so long as a task is done, it matters not by what means, so long as no one is needed to put out fires or mend broken limbs afterwards. All present signed their names to this charter, including the wizard Angstrom, who was not seen to be present during the crafting of the document. Some potential skills were left to more needful times, much to the disappointment of a few necromancers among our number. Lord Stonecarp told them they might have some usefulness that would earn them colony merits, but he didn't elaborate with an earshot and made sure to talk very softly with them behind the thick closed door to his office. I should mention he has an office now, as a part of our city hall. It was originally thought to be a burial cairn, but few tombs have reception areas, pigeonholes for paperwork, and a commanding desk in the largest room. We've begun using it in spite of the location being well outside the original plans for the Palisade Wall, and the fact that the building is still basically inside of a hill. Not wanting to appear to be catering to himself alone, Lord Stonecarp has put off the complete exterior restoration of the building until other projects are completed. It was also pointed out that the building would be quite drafty if all the dirt was removed before someone figured out how to make replacement glass for the windows. Questions about how and why this building was buried were discouraged by his lordship, who often followed up by pointing out the attractive murals, finely carved stonework, and well-preserved wood fixtures. Surely such a place, he said, deserves to be seen and used if only to celebrate those who came before us. The interior's restoration has been left to me and Lord Stonecarp's two servants, who survived the voyage, Dorfio and Panar. I was planning to chronicle our valiant efforts at removing centuries of filth from inside of this cave-like building, but I was gently reminded that future historians will likely care little for the complaints of humble laborers such as myself. After asking his lordship what they would be interested in, I can report that his dinner consisted of some manner of shore-going animal much like a boar but with four tusks and a barbed tail, boiled vegetables, and a port wine from a decanter that refills every day at sunrise, a gift from the king on the day our voyage began. His lordship's sense of humor continues to be of great amusement to his lordship. And hey, I figure if you've got time to snark, you're not totally up the creek, right? Archaeologists haven't found that second wizard's tower, and neither have the treasure seekers who are convinced that there was something hidden there. No holes in the sky have been found so far, but people keep scouring the area with their thalmic detectors. 
In case anyone out there was thinking of trying, the best guess for the farthest distance from the coast that little space warp could be is about where Highway 41 is today, and most enchantment specialists think that it would have collapsed by now, probably dumping whatever was inside of it into uh, all-gone space. It's also hard for people on their morning commute to have to steer around people with hex detectors every time they see something about Dunwellmish on the History Channel. And uh, next time, we'll find out what other meals Stonecarp ate and what else Lannis has to complain about. And some of the colonists unearthed their first clue about why no other expeditions ever returned from the newish world. And that's the place we live. Terrifying, huh? You've been listening to Vorpal History, a look at the fantastical history of the world, which, for all you know, is totally real. Look for Vorpal History on the Fantasy Network, or wherever you get your podcasts. 